0: does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q-certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Hubler has it all.
1: Back here in the drivehubler.com studio, I'm James Boyd with Jimmy Cooks and Eddie Garrison. This is 107.5 93.5 93.5 The Fan, we have my friend Karina, I'm sorry, Karina Mustafa on the phone, I'm sorry, it's, uh, I always got to say your name like twice to make sure I'm right, but uh, she's aware of many hats, covers the NBA for Enjoy Your Basketball, um, Enjoy Basketball, I'm sorry, and among other things, you know, covers a W, just does a lot of things that I think are really cool, and Karina, for you, What was your first impression of Aaliyah Boston? I was there. I saw the uh, flashes of what she could become, and obviously she's a big get here in Indy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks for having me on, James. Um, And also I think, you know, they were double teaming her, and then they were also triple teaming her at some point in her debut, which I thought was uh, very funny to see. Obviously we know Aaliyah is very familiar with contact from playing in college and all that um, but she kind of got a taste of that in the W now, and I thought she handled it very well. I mean, she had 15 points in both of their first weekend. Even against the Liberty, she, like, blew past john Paul Jones several times. I thought I thought she did really well for her debut in the W. I'm really excited um, for her to lead this Indiana team. I know they lost both times, but they were pretty close against the Connecticut Sun in their first game. So I think it was a lot of positives from Aliyah's uh, debut weekend.
3: Karina, how helpful or beneficial as Aaliyah starts to get her sea legs, so to speak, within the WNBA, will her past experience of of being able to have run with Team USA and, and be playing against some of these high level stars within the WNBA before she was a part of the league benefit her in the long run? Because that was one of the biggest things as I was seeing her come up is being able to hold your own, not just against international prospects, but also those on Team USA within those scrimmages in the lead up to, say, the FIBA World Cup last year.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it prepares you for the types of talent and size that you're going to be going up against in the WNBA. I think, like, those experiences, I've heard a lot of rookies speak very highly about their experiences with with the teams and stuff before they even enter the league. And so it's very obvious that that's going to have an impact on the way that you're comfortable against playing. Like, I mean, it was really hard for Leah to just, like, start off against Alyssa Thomas as like in her first game like that to me seems so unfair as like a welcome to the league moment in your first game but honestly like all of these experiences leading up to that I thought prepared her really well and she wasn't afraid of the moment and I thought that that really like shined through
1: so for listeners who don't know who Alyssa Thomas is or don't know much about her she is like the bully of the WNBA. <laughs> and so, I mean, I watched a couple of plays where Aliyah's trying to back her down. She's just not moving, just a stone wall. And so that was a, an exciting matchup to see. But just looking big picture at the team, um, how important do you think it is for them to, I guess, find some continuity and find some type of identity after kind of flailing the last few years and I would imagine a big part of that identity starts not only with Aaliyah but with Kelsey Mitchell who to me is an all-star caliber player and just hasn't been giving maybe the best uh, opportunity to display that to, to the masses.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I was like a bit higher on Indiana going into the season than most people were. Um, not a great start for them to lose their first two games. But like I said before, like they did keep it pretty close against Connecticut. And I think we saw flashes of like what they could be. Kelsey Mitchell, like honestly, like I think she needs some more. T- to get her buckets like she was leading scoring last season she's able to generate looks for herself while also attracting attention when the ball is in her hands like you know she's going to create plays she's always looking around for her teammates Um, I think she's like the heart and soul of this team and as much as like Now the attention is on, like, Aaliyah Boston, on Melissa Smith, like, all these young players that have come in in the last couple of years. Kelsey Mitchell is still the Indiana Fever. She's still the vet on this team. Um, And so, honestly, like, it's just going to take some time for them to keep gelling together. And uh, it's still a young and exciting team for the Fever.
1: So, Karina, I think one of the things that stood out from yesterday's game was the fact that they're going up against one of these new – quote-unquote super teams the Liberty didn't look all that super in their season opener but my goodness did they look good yesterday um what are your thoughts on them the aces and just the star power of this league and seeing some of this star power uh team up
2: Yeah, it was very interesting because you kind of saw, you saw Aces, Liberty, and then you also saw, like, the second tier of, like, Mystic Sun Mm kind of go off this weekend. And I think the Aces definitely stood out, (laughs) like, out out of everybody else, um, just the way that they completely pummeled the storm. They had, like, six players in double figures. But I think, honestly, like, the Liberty, yeah, they were able to get pretty much whatever they wanted against Indiana yesterday. And I think that's going to come with more time as they, like, gel together and they're able to play together more. But I think, like, the key to the super teams being successful is going to be, A, being healthy and being able to play with each other and get a lot of reps in. But I think, like, a team like the Washington Mystics or the Connecticut Sun, who have proven to have, like, a core that are familiar with each other, like, don't, like, don't uh, forget about them. Because they're going to be able to do some damage as well if they continue to gel together and build on the experience that they had before. Because the Mystics looked very, very good this weekend. And then also, Adding in like Shakira Austin's performance as well. Like she's going to be so, so good for them this year in her second year.
3: We talked a lot about here in the city of Indianapolis and the state as a whole that a number of the different pro franchises are going through varying rebuilds retools a lot of time spent in the lottery or towards the top of the draft we're having a conversation right now of how do the pacers make that leap next year to finally hopefully have lottery days behind them you mentioned you were a little bit higher than most on the fever to start the season where are they obviously it's a smaller league but where are they at in that regard how far away are they from having lottery days behind them
2: Uh, honestly, like, I had them sixth going into the season in my power rankings, so we'll see how that shakes out. I think, for me, where I was with the Fever, it was, like, they were either gonna, like, play really close games and lose a bunch of them, or they were gonna win those really close games, and, like, right now, they're on the losing side, but we'll see how, like, it continues to develop as the season moves on honestly I think with like because they got Leah Boston because they got Alyssa Smith I think they're like maybe a couple years away from being a very competitive playoff team and I think we're like closer to that than we are to like still being in the lottery with uh, with the Indiana Fever.
1: Gotcha. So I'm looking forward to seeing more of them in person. I know they're on a road trip right now. They're going to be back at home, I believe, uh, first week of June against the Aces. So we'll see one of those super teams up close. Karina, I'll tell you all about it and, and how it went, and I'm sure you'll be watching. <laughs> but to pivot to the NBA, which you're also familiar with, what are your thoughts on what's happened with the Heat? I mean, I... I can see why the Lakers are down against Denver. They're a number one seed. You know, it's hard to beat a number one seed. Nikola Jokic, two-time MVP. But it seems like Jimmy is just ruining the party in Boston or Miami or whatever the case might be. So what has been your reaction to seeing them go from being maybe a quarter away from out of the postseason against the Bulls in the play-in to now being one game away from the NBA Finals?
2: It's so wild because I had the Boston Celtics winning the championship this year, but uh, Jimmy Butler had other plans. And <laughs> honestly, like he, he's so powerful. He's got me rooting for the Miami heat, which like I'm from Toronto. I've been a Raptors fan my whole life. I kn- I'd be cheering for the Miami Heat just based on like past history. But Jimmy Butler is such a special talent. And I think one of the biggest uh, things that I've noticed about this Miami Heat team is like what they've been able to do without Tyler Hero because they lost him very, very early. And I thought that that was going to really hurt them because he's one of their best shooters. Um, but they've been able to just. Be hungry, have a lot of ambition. I think the fact that trash talking uh, with Jimmy Butler is just making him even better is something that's very impressive because he's like sh- putting money where his mouth is. Um, and so I, 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 I don't know if they're going to sweep the Celtics, but if they do, it's going to be a, it's going to be like a grab your popcorn type of situation for the NBA playoffs. And I think it's so good that an eighth seed uh, is doing this right now
3: we were joking to start the show that one of the metrics and it's sometimes criticized because it uses point differential to base its analytical data on series predictions is ESPN's BPI. It was kind of getting drugged through the mud last night because it still has Boston with a 72% chance to take the series, despite the fact they're in this 3-0 hole. Again, a large part of that, as we've done more research on it is weighted on point differential. Miami was towards the very bottom of the league. Boston, obviously towards the top. Uh, I know that you probably removed the biases aside (laughs) with the Boston prediction, but as you look at that pick on life support right now, and you're not wrong. A lot of people had it. I, I did too going into this series is there a pathway in your mind for Boston to get back in this thing?
2: I don't know. That's a really big <laughs> number for her <laughs> to be confident for them to come back from being down in a 3-0 hole. But I don't know. I feel like the thing with the Celtics is, like, when they look good, they look good, and that means all the pieces have to be working. The ball movement has to be there. But, like, when you're not getting enough out of your stars, like, if you're not getting enough from Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown or, you know, the supporting cast, I just find it very hard for them to crawl back into this series, I think you need like really big performances like that. Jason Tatum, 51 point performance, uh, I think it was against the 76ers. Mm-hmm. Like, you're gonna need something like that in order to come back into this series. And I just don't see it happening right now. And I don't think playoff Jimmy Butler is going to let that happen.
1: <laughs> yeah, you talk about playoff Jimmy Butler. I mean, playoff Jokic has been one of the best players I've ever seen in my life. The guy is efficient. He can dominate in a multitude of ways with his rebounding, passing, scoring. And so from that perspective, do you think, because I don't expect the Lakers to come back and win this series, but do you think they get a game, one game, tonight?
2: See, I they can um I hope they do I thought they could do it until now honestly but now I they find themselves also down three and know um so we'll see it's just it's a little bit hard with the confidence level when you're like going into like a game where you're you don't want to get swept but also like even if you do get a game and you still end up losing like is that much better who knows but uh yeah it's really hard Jokic is like He's playing really great basketball when it matters because obviously, like the whole MVP discourse between him and Joel Embiid towards the end of the season, where where Embiid was having a better season, but now Jokic is the one that's still in the playoffs. He's playing a lot better, um, so yeah, I don't know if the Lakers can uh, get one. I would hope they do, but. At this point, it also doesn't really matter
1: that much. So as a fellow Canadian, can you ask Jamal Murray what he has against the Lakers and why <laughs> he continues to just slaughter them? And, and jokes aside, what has it been like seeing him finally be healthy and have a shot to help them do something they haven't done in French history, which is, one, get to the NBA Finals and win the NBA Finals?
2: Oh, it's been it's been amazing. It's been so great to see his return was one of my favorite storylines um, of the NBA season. I was so excited for him to come back. Um, I know he's super tired of the bubble narratives. See him performing well again, and like maybe it gives me a reason to claim the Nuggets somehow because he's Canadian. But uh, any su- any success from him is uh, he's going to make the country proud, obviously with his. Uh, involvement with Canada basketball and all that. So I think it's been great to see, not only for the Nuggets, but also just for him personally.
1: Karina, I think the only people who think it's great to see or don't think it's great to see are the Lakers. Um, They're hurting right (laughs) now because of that, man. But thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm sure we'll be in touch through Twitter and things like that, but you continue to do great work, and we'll catch up
2: soon. Thank you so much, guys.
1: All right, that's Karina Mustafa, who covers the WNBA for Enjoy Basketball.
3: And everything in between. Welcome back to the Fan Midday Show. With Eddie Garrison guiding us throughout the afternoon, I'm Jimmy Cook alongside James Boyd. Happy Monday to you. The countdown is on to the 107th running of the greatest spectacle in racing. Chris Denary, nice enough to take some time with us. You know him as the longtime play-by-play voice on Bally Sports for your Indiana Pacers, also a large portion of IndyCar Radio. Chris, always enjoy talking to you. We mentioned it as we were teasing, and I know that you weren't out there on assignment yesterday for Quals, but obviously you you followed it along as you get set up for for yet another Call on the IndyCar Radio Network. I guess I want to start there, Chris, for you. I know that unless the Twitter bio hasn't been updated, you're either about to enter you're 18 with the Pacers, maybe you've already updated it, but 17 years going strong for you there. How many years is this for you now on the IndyCar Radio Network?
0: Yeah, that, that is correct. Uh, the next fall will be my 18th year as the TV voice of the Pacers. Uh, this will be my 22nd year in turn four and my 24th year overall on the uh, IMS radio network. I started in the late 90s. Uh, the only race that I've missed uh, since I went to turn four was in 2014 uh, when the Pacers were in the Eastern Conference finals and we did postgame shows on the road. And so I remember being in Miami uh, watching the race, uh, but I, I, I've been in turn four 2001 to 2013 and from 2015 to uh, this Sunday. So yeah, it's hard to believe that I've been in turn four for over 20 years.
3: Chris, I know you get this question all the time because people ask me and my answer is, I don't know, but it's just poetry in motion. How do you, Mark James, Jay Query, the entire crew, how do you make it sound so seamless throughout one of the fastest, most electric events that anybody's going to be able to broadcast.
0: Yeah, I get that. I get that question a lot, or I get that comment. People are, they they ask, how how do you guys do that? And, you know, I'm very fortunate. I I just come in uh, with the races in Indianapolis. So, uh, you know, Mark and and Nick and Jake and Michael do races throughout the year. And so, uh, you know, part of it, and, and I heard an interview that Mark James did yesterday, um, with uh, Greg, Greg straw. Um, It's all about trust. It really is. It's, it's, it's like being a member of a team and you've got to trust your teammates. And, and so you really have to listen uh, to what your teammate is saying. And so when the lap starts, you know, when the race starts, I'm listening to Nick and he's got the call and then he throws it to Michael. And then of course, I'm really listening intently to Jake uh, because let's say, you know, Alex Palo is in the lead. Um, going into three, and Rena's VK is behind him. If there's a pass, uh, then you know you've got you've got to know that you've got to know that now VK is in the lead, followed by Pelot. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of time spent, you know, pen to paper, um, you know, just jotting down quickly uh, who are the top five, uh, and then knowing that that could change by the time they get to you, but. Uh, we'll we'll do a, a rehearsal, if you will, on Friday. Uh, we'll be up uh, in all of our spots uh, for Carburation Day. And for me, that's really important. I mean, I've been studying the cars, been watching the cars, uh, doing all those kinds of things. You know, you, you really can't see the number of the cars. you got to really hone in on colors and those types of things. So uh, it's something I look forward to every year. I mean, there are people throughout the country – you know monday or tuesday i'll have text messages emails from other nba folk uh from friends of mine you know college friends high school friends that maybe don't even live in indianapolis but their tradition is listening to the indianapolis 500 on radio so uh looking forward to it this sunday
1: chris long time no see by the way um Glad to see you're still rocking out with the Pacers over there. Enjoy uh, listening to you rather than, I guess, seeing you at every game this past season. But um, the one thing you talked about was working with your teammates. We had some teammate um, things happen towards the back end of you know the qualifying. Um, and so, what did you think of the way uh, Graham Rahal handled himself after having Jack Harvey um, bump him, you know, out of contention for the Indy 500?
0: I mean, 100% class. I mean, just the way that, that Graham handled that. I mean, you know, you're driving for your dad, and uh, your your name is on the, on the team. And you're not going to be in the biggest race in the world. Uh, it had to be gut-wrenching. But the way he handled it, uh, the way he answered all the questions, uh, the emotion that he showed— um, I, I mean, you can't help but as as he moves on in his career, you know, root for the guy. Um, so, uh, but you have to give a lot of credit to Ray and Letterman Racing, and, and what they did
5: is
3: they
0: they they gave Jack Harvey the opportunity, and he went out the first time and didn't do it. And I don't think any of us, uh, you know, wherever you were listening, if you are out there, if you're listening on radio, watching on television. Um, you know, David Hamilton did not think that Jack Harvey would have enough speed to get there, and so you got to give him a lot of credit because um, those the, his third and fourth laps uh, were incredible. Because all of those laps decline, you know, first to second, but him him able to hold on in laps three and four and get the job done. I mean, simply amazing.
3: We were trying to find a proper comparison, Chris, and maybe there's not one, but as they're panning over and showing Graham Rahal in the cockpit of his car, just watching all this unfold. But there is a sense of helplessness there in the human element of things because there's nothing he can do. Like, like it's his teammate. There's a bittersweet moment there. But like, there's not going to be time for another run by the time Jack Harvey takes one final go at it. And and that was shocking to me enough because like you mentioned, the way they put it on display after his second to last run made it seem like he wasn't going to have enough time and and getting the engine cooled down and ready to go for the second or the, the final run that he got. When you're looking at sports and all the great events you've covered, is there anything close to it in terms of what's going through both the minds of Graham Ray Hall, of Bobby Ray Hall, and the entire racing team, and of Jack Harvey in a moment like Bump Day?
0: No, I don't think so from the standpoint that if you're if you're Graham Ray Hall, there's nothing you can do. I mean, if you're out, let, let's say it's a basketball game. Um, you know, James covered the Pacers uh, for the Star for a number of years and, you know, now with the Athletic and the Colts. But, you know, think about a, a last-second shot or a, a Hail Mary touchdown pass. The other team is out there defending or trying to stop that team. And so – they have some skin in the game, right? Graham Rahal had no opportunity. He just had to sit there like everybody else and watch. I mean, he, he he didn't have the luxury of being out on the track, able to do anything. So I I don't know if there is anything like that. The only thing that I could could say would be would be like a golf tournament, okay? The the you know the the players coming down the 18th hole. Um, somebody's already in the clubhouse and either has the lead or is tied and just has to watch, you know, the, his his or her fellow competitor do something on the 18th hole. That's about the only thing I could compare it to because it seems like in any other competition, the other, you know, the other team that's trying to score, there's a the, the other team is trying to defend and they have a chance to make a stop. So, yeah, just just I, I don't know if we've ever seen any. You know, we, we've seen it before, and that's the great thing about bumping. And even though there was only a field of 34 fighting for 33 spots, it still gave uh, yesterday something that we have not seen in a while.
1: So, Chris, you talked about, you know, uh, being at the mercy of another person, other events, pivoting to the Pacers three of the first four lotto numbers were to win the thing, and then you're at the mercy of the ping-pong balls and maybe not having to bounce the right way. Um, What was your reaction to that maybe coming so close to having that, you know, uh, very coveted number one pick, but also realizing that, in all seriousness, they didn't drop, which is a good thing, and they're in position to add another young piece to this core?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, the good news is they didn't drop. uh, You know, they're number seven. Um, and the fact that uh, their second-round draft pick is 32 and didn't drop to 50. You know, that's a positive. Uh, I was emceeing an event that night for the Pacers, and, you know, all the fans were there, and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, 14, 13, 12, they they went down, and you're thinking, hey, maybe there's a chance here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I, I think we all knew the percentages did not weigh in the Pacers' favor. But but I think they have, as Kevin Pritchard has said, I use this I use this word after he's used the word. Uh, the Pacers have a lot of optionality, right? They, they they go into this draft with three first round draft picks, uh, the second pick of the second round, and another pick uh, in the fifties. Uh, I think it's a pretty a pretty deep draft. I mean, clearly Wimba Yama and Scoot Henderson, um, you know, are at the top, uh, and, you know. It, there's a maybe. There's a drop off between three and and you know ten, but I think you can get a pretty good player at seven. Uh, I, I think Kevin Pritchard and Chad Buchanan have said, "Look, we don't anticipate bringing five rookies onto this roster. Uh, they only have three open roster spots: so three free agents and George Hill, uh, James Johnson, and O'Shea Brissett." Uh, I think they have an opportunity to use those draft picks for trades. Um, I've said this. I think Tyrese Halliburton is a wonderful leader, and I think he is somebody that not just his teammates with the Pacers want to play with. I think there are players across the league that would want to play with Tyrese. So I think the Pacers are in a good position. I think they can be flexible. I think they'll, there are a number of teams that don't have first-round picks that are looking to get into the draft. So I think the Pacers have a lot of really good options and yeah, I'm sure that if if you were fortunate enough to get into the Ascension St. Vincent Center and look at their whiteboard, um, it probably <laughs> has about 10 to 12 or 15 different scenarios with what they could do, and I think they're excited about that.
1: That was going to be my next question. You touched on it a little bit there, but how much do you think Tyrese Halliburton could change the landscape of this team, not only because of the way he plays, but the way he uplifts others? and We've seen Miles Turner have a career year this past season because of Tyrese just finding ways to put him in situations to succeed. And how much do you think that will entice other players to say, hey, if I just go over here and I run the floor, I'll get eight points a night playing with this guy?
0: Oh, no question. I mean, you know, give a lot of credit to the coaching staff, uh, you know, Rick Carlisle, and his staff. And, and tyrese they unlocked miles Turner there's no question about that and and put him in great positions to be successful uh, his offensive numbers were the best that that we have seen in his eight years and so i agree with that i i, I think tyrese is a more than willing passer he then says that if he needs to take over offensively he can but he will also work on getting his teammates uh, the best shots possible so I think when you have somebody like that, he's only 22 years old, he's going into his fourth year, so his final year of his rookie contract, he's going to be a pacer for a long time, and I think that bodes well for the franchise.
4: Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqal and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.
3: Chris, when you look at the areas of need for the Pacers and you look at the treasure trove of, of first round picks that they have just in, in this year's draft. And obviously you mentioned picking 32 in the second round. You can tell within the organization, they feel like they're close to turning a corner that they, they, they want to be ideally like any team that's in a lottery out of it next year. They want to be vying for a play in spotter or, or vying for a playoff spot. When you look at the strides they made this year and the, options available then the optionality like you mentioned that kevin pritcher said with this coming draft and the rest of this off season. how critical how monumental is this specific offseason for the pacers franchise where they want to go with this core
0: well i think it's very important uh I, I, they made a lot of progress this year i mean some people would say okay they only won 35 games but it was 10 more than last year and they did it uh, look look back at the first half of the year they were 23 and 18 at the halfway point. And I remember going to New York, and this was going to be a huge game at Madison Square Garden because it was a Knicks team that was, you know, I think they had 21 or 22 wins. And then Tyrese Halliburton gets hurt, and he misses the next 10 games, and the Pacers go one and nine. And that pretty much sort of sealed the deal, uh, you know, in the Pacer season as far as making even the play in or the playoffs because, you know, they're a little bit in a scramble mode. So, This is a franchise that wants to get back to where they feel they belong. And if you look over, even though they've not been in the playoffs the last three or so years and have not won a playoff series since 2014, I mean, look back since uh, 2000, the last 25 years, they're in the top five or six or seven as far as teams that have made the most um, conference finals appearances, and that number would be a little bit higher in the East, I think it's Boston, Miami. And I think the Pacers are right there. And so they really feel like they have the pieces in place to, you know, to have the core and the base. And now you got to keep adding to that. And uh, you know, a lot of players have been in the building the last couple of weeks working out the young guys. uh, And that's always a good sign. We saw that last year and, you know, this is a this is a franchise that next late April, early May does not want to be on the sidelines. They want to be in the postseason. And I've said this that there is no better time um, in Indianapolis than Racers and Pacers. I mean, I look back <laughs> oh, yeah. at, at I look back at 2012, 13, and 14. Recently, I mean, you can go farther back into the 90s and uh, the early 2000s with Reggie. But I, I just want to go back to, to when I was doing games. You know, uh, 12, 13, and 14, those three series with the Miami Heat um, and Racers Pacers uh, during May is just fantastic. And, and, you know, you throw in, I was the longtime voice of the Indiana Theater, the WNBA team, and, and they start in, in May. So that's what Pacers Sports and Entertainment wants to get back to, mm-hmm. is uh, having those opportunities uh, in April and May to uh, you know fill gamebridge field house and, and and bring back those days of the past.
1: Chris, how cool was it to see Rick Carlisle challenge Benedict Matherin the way that he did throughout the season? Obviously he had an incredible start and really an overall great rookie season, but to hold him to that standard and to see Matherin not shy away from that and accept that and even want more of it.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the that's the thing that Rick said early in the years that you know Benedict last summer uh, came up to Rick and said, "Look, I want you to coach me hard. I need you. I want you to challenge me. I, w- I want to be the best that I can be." And you know they did that throughout the year. I mean there were there were a few times, uh, probably I'm going to say in the six, game sixty to seventy, where they sat him down a few times because they didn't feel like he was doing what 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 Benedict wanted to do or what the coaching staff and it didn't affect him from the standpoint that he sulked or he moped nope he just went out and worked harder and uh, I thought he had a really really good year I mean he was first team all rookie uh, averaged better than 16 points per game I mean this is a this is a young man that has a chance to be really really special Um, you know how who do you compare him to I mean if you know, some people have said with his demeanor and his work ethic. I mean, Jimmy Butler, right? And what we're seeing Jimmy Butler do in the playoffs right now. But uh, there's there's no question that he has a chance to be a very very special player. And uh, I know that there aren't many off days for Benedict Matherin in the off season, if, <laughs> if any, if any. I mean, I can just tell you that um, you know one of the great things about being back on the road this year. And again, we didn't travel for two years after COVID. Was just being on the bus um, after games, and I mean Benedict would be—I mean, he'd have his phone out. He was watching highlights. I mean, he was watching highlights of 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 the game. Um, and this is you know 45 minutes after the game, so he—not not that there are other guys that don't want to be good because they do, but this guy has a special mindset and has a chance to be really good.
3: Chris, I want to shift back to the speedway for just a second. Chris Airy, joining us here on the fan midday show, TV voice of your Indiana Pacers, as well as a part of the IndyCar radio network will be out at the speedway covering the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500. You'll hear him on these very airways, as well as across the IndyCar radio network. We talk about how hard it is to be able to dominate the month of May and obviously Simon Passion, the lone example of being able to sweep the GMR Grand Prix and then go out and actually win the 500. That's now on Alex Polo's radar completely. It was after he won last weekend and now able to add a, a pole victory to that as well over Quals. Your takeaways on what this young man is doing and just his outlook as he gets ready for these final couple days preparing for the greatest spectacle in racing.
0: Well, he's with a great team. I mean, we all know that. Um, he's got a good mentor, uh, you know, Scott Dixon. And, uh, you know, the one thing about what's going to happen on Sunday, you got to have a lot of luck. you got to be in the right place at the right time. I mean, how many times have we, you know, we we thought about uh, favorites and, you know, they get caught up in an incident or, you know, speed on pit road or, or any of those things that can have you out of the race. So, but he's a special talent there's no question about that and you know trying to do something that you know is very rare and that sweep the month of may uh but uh it's a long race i mean i can t- i can tell you from sitting up in turn 4 uh it's a long long race and uh, you know we'll have to see what the conditions are it looks to be you know that it's going to be warm but not not super hot uh but uh i mean he's a, he's a, pe- a special talent there's no question and You know, Will Power said this the other day in an interview on the IMS radio, that he thinks it's as deep a field as we've ever seen uh, at the Indianapolis 500. I mean, there are so many talented drivers, uh, so many young drivers that are up and coming. So uh, Polo is definitely one of those.
3: Is it still fascinating to you 20-plus years into this that you mention it? It's, it is a, a perfect mixture of how to win this race. A lot of it is luck. A lot of it is the engineers. A lot of it, of course, is the drivers. But it has to be a perfect mixture of all that, does it not, to be able to walk away victorious, on Sunday, I mean, he, he, there's no written way to do it. You can set yourself up for better success based on qualms and all that, but it really all does come down to how the rest of the chips fall over the course of that race.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you have a bad pit stop, I mean, if if you stall in the pits, if you know they they struggle getting a tire on, I mean, there's just so many things that that go into uh, the opportunity to win, you know, a 500 mile race. I mean, if this was a sprint. You know, and it you know was a a ten lap or a twenty lap feature. It'd be maybe a little bit easier to call, but it's not, and and that's what makes it. That's what makes it so cool. I mean, you know, for me, what I enjoy is just every bit of the day. Um, You know, being out there in Turn Four. uh, You know, fortunately, we now have a big. You know, we've had a big screen out there for a number of years. But, you know, just to be out there amongst all the people, so many of the fans that sit in front of me have been there for the 20 years that I've been there. So it's almost like, you know, you you show up and and there's some of the people that you recognize year after year after year. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's it's, I, I consider myself very lucky to. Uh, continue to be able to do this again i work with a great group that you know does it week in and week out on the indycar radio network and i'm just thrilled that i'm i'm able to, to continue on and turn four and and looking forward to it again on sunday
1: last one for me chris what has it been like to see the sport grow and get to a place now where you know this is the fastest 33 car field that you all have had and i mean what has that been like to just see it evolve, change, shift, and now be in a space where you're like, man, you know what might have, you know, been good enough four or five years ago isn't really what's um, good enough now.
0: Yeah, and the faster they go, the quicker we have to talk. Right? <laughs> we, you know, we only have, uh, you know, maybe five to ten seconds uh, to to say what we see. So, you know, as the cars go faster, uh, it makes it probably more incredibly difficult for us. Because you have uh, less time uh, to, to get your thoughts out, and as I've said, you know, of the 200 laps, we won't we won't call every every lap, but I'm going to say we're going to do 75 to 80 percent of them. Because at some point, Mark James will go down to the pits, or he and Davy Hamilton will talk, and and what I've always said is, you really have to be on your A game. Yeah, you may make a mistake here or there, but you better make a mistake on lap 41. <laughs> you better not make a mistake on lap one ninety eight or one ninety nine or 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 or, or two hundred. So, um, but I like it. I mean, it's it's just like an athlete has to deal with the pressure of the moment. I feel like we as broadcasters have to deal with the pressure of the moment. Um, you know, I don't know how many people will be listening. I mean, it'll. I'm sure throughout the country, around the world, it's millions. And so you have that many people listening to you. And so uh, there's a sense of pressure that that we have as well uh, to make sure we have the call right.
3: Well, I, I wish you all the best in terms of your speed reading exercises between now and then. <laughs> um, as, as entertaining as that would be for me and James, it's a shame we don't get to see a, a, a qualification speed run with you, uh, Mark and, and Jake and, and the entire crew trying to go full speed at uh, I don't know what it would be at that point. Uh, 70 or 80 words per minute. To let's just roll through it with a high-powered broadcaster exercise. But all jokes aside, Chris, it, it's it's you mentioned it even if you don't have the numbers off the top of your head. It's an incredible tradition being able to Listen to the race here I I know I'll be doing that I'm not going to be out there At the track this year For the race But I will have it Wherever I am For Memorial Day weekend Uh, You and the entire crew there Are a tradition For so many people That listen across the state And across the world Really of the IndyCar Radio network And I I can't wait for Sunday I know you guys are going to do A fantastic job as always
0: Well thank you very much I mean I think back To when I was a kid Uh, I I was uh, born in the Dayton, Ohio area And lived in southwestern Ohio For I think the first 11 or 12 years of my life before we moved to Indiana. And I just remember being in the backyard uh, playing hot box or wiffle ball. And we'd have the, the radio on on the patio and we'd be listening to the Indianapolis 500 because my dad uh, was an Indianapolis native. And so for me now, you know, again, 50 years later, Uh, To still be a part of it and calling the race on radio, it's pretty special.
3: That, That is very special indeed, and we enjoy listening to every second of it and continuing that tradition for the generations to come. Chris, thank you again. I know it's a very busy week for you, but always appreciate when you're able to make some time for us.
0: All right. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, James. Thank you, Eddie.
3: That's Chris Denary, 17 years in the books as the Pacers TV broadcaster for Valley Sports. You're 18 coming up for him and yet another year for IndyCar Radio with the greatest spectacle in racing this weekend.
4: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclib 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
3: In the DriveHumor.com studios, this is the Fan Midday Show. Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, a Garrison behind the ones and twos. Joining us now, he is a key cog in the machine that is the PGA Tour radio network. I don't have his actual billables to fully make this a ring announcer-like introduction, but it's Will. It's Will Haskin with us today here on the Fan Midday Show. <laughs> Will, nine under, goes Brooks Kafka. Third time, he captures the Wanamaker Trophy from a viewership standpoint, it felt like at times that maybe he might slip up here and there, but eventually closes strong, uh, from the broadcast standpoint, was it ever really in doubt for you on the final day?
5: Uh, no, I mean, I was doing featured groups this past week on ESPN plus and I had Scotty Scheffler and Justin Rose yesterday. And so we were certainly invested in this idea. Like could Scotty Scheffler make a charge and, and run down Capco and he did shoot 65, but you know, he, he's, he had to approach that in 18. And he's technically, he was four shots back at that very moment. And I think if it weren't for the amazing story of Michael Block, the <laughs> PGA professional from California, who just sort of created this buzz and this energy over the last hour, it would have been a major where there was a guy leading by four with two holes to go, which just doesn't kind of bang the same, you know, if that makes sense. And so I think that there was, it was odd in that sense because there was a lot of energy around the golf course for something that didn't have to do with the winner. But to answer the broader question, you know, Brooks birdies three in a row, two through four, and just kind of felt like it was, I mean, even though he made a couple of bogeys and Victor Hovland was right there, he never gave up the lead. And until somebody could really prove that they were going to come all the way to the top and pass him or, you know, sort of punch him in the mouth of the moment. And Scheffler tried. I mean, he almost spun in a wedge on 13 and he hit the flag stick with a bunker shot on 14. And if one of those drops in that place goes absolutely insane, then maybe we would have seen a little something there. But no, it kind of felt inevitable in a lot of senses yesterday for Brooks. And then it ended up being, but we had to kind of wait for the, the Michael Black smoke to clear for there to be this sort of walk up 18, like, oh yeah, and here comes Brooks to win the tournament.
1: <laughs> well, you touched on it there. I'm not a huge golf guy. I usually keep up with who wins, you know, some of the majors and things like that. But Michael Block, he was all over my timeline yesterday. I'm like, wait a second, he's not winning this thing, is he? So I see that he had the hole-in-one, his reaction. Um, What do you think that does just for the sport when you have those moments where, you know, if you're, you know, I don't know, an amateur golfer or something like that, you kind of see yourself in a guy like him?
5: Yeah, I mean he's a you know he's a professional. He's won 45 professional tournaments in the Southern California section. So it's no different than you know, the head pro at the Brickyard or, you know, um, the head pro at Crooked Stick, you know, being able to compete in this tournament, they're really, really stinking good golfers. Mm-hmm. And Michael been a really good professional golfer, he's made five PGA championships and qualified for two U.S. Opens. So this was his seventh major that he had played in by going through the, the various qualification channels. I think within the industry and within the business and someone who was a, a club professional for two years out of college here in Indianapolis, I think many of us sort of know what those guys are capable of and the best players do. It's just that they also have day jobs, you know, doing lessons and, you know, regripping clubs and running junior camps and all the things that sort of endear them to sort of this everyman type of thing. And so I think that the story was more let's shine a light on these, these, these you know, club professionals on a really hard golf course this week. I thought it was going to be really difficult for anybody to make the cut. He was the only one out of the 20 to make the cut and then kind of contends when it's all said and done and has all of these incredible storybook moments along with it. Uh, I think this is an isolated situation. Like, do I expect Michael Block to win a PGA tour event in his exemption? No. Do I expect him to win, you know, to do this again in a PGA championship? No, but it was a perfect person to sort of highlight what the PGA of America is, which is different than the PGA tour, which most golf fans don't actually understand the differentiator here, that the PGA of America represents all professional golf members, which is predominantly the guys behind the counter or on the range at your local club. And Michael Block is one of those guys and one of the 20 that plays in their ultimate championship for professional golfers. And so I think that was the big part of it. But um, it just shows that there's always a guy or gal out there, even at the highest levels of golf, that can have that one magical moment with the professionals the very best. And that is always what makes this sport special and why it. I think it's not good to try and say, hey, let's just make the, sure the, the top 20 guys in the world are only playing against one another. Do the fans want that? Sure. But then what, what we miss out is on something like yesterday, which was... Truly magical to watch what happened with Block over the entire weekend.
3: Obviously, the hole in one is more impressive of the two of these. But when you mention the fact that you're you're about to have Brooks capture capture his third Wanamaker Trophy, and that's really what the the, the the main dressing is for all the support and the block chance and and everything else throughout that day. He still needed that wild par save at the end to be able yeah. to have a share of 15th place and earn a ticket into the 106th edition next season.
5: Yeah, no doubt. And I think Jim Nance was probably a little bit too hyperbolic on the air <laughs> saying he was like the greatest up and down ever, but given the circumstances for him, it was pretty special. And let's and he said afterwards if he knew that he had to get it up and down and stay in the top 15, which he didn't really think about. He was just kind of playing golf and just riding this, you know, wave of emotion. He said, there's no way I get that up and down if all of a sudden someone applies the pressure and I realize that I have to make par here to get this next shot and to be back in this championship the following year. So, yeah, the hole-in-one is always the moment, but I think the skill and the... I guess the stick-to-itiveness, the fight that he had, sort of showcased through there. I'm not saying that hitting a hole in one is fluky, but he hit a really good golf shot, and it just happened to go in the hole on the way down, right? And the skill that it took for him to get that shot and to hit that shot, that flop shot up and down, and then drill the putt on top of it, just sort of shows what he was made out of the entire week, and and do it alongside Rory McIlroy, who was just you know so effervescent with him you know every time there was a moment which was just kind of a a cool sort of element as you have the face of golf you know playing with this guy who's the face of the club professionals that week that made it even more special so look in 10 years are we going to remember this as the michael block pga no probably not it's going to be brooks kepka's third pga championship but at least on this monday block is stealing a lot of the headlines
1: so for brooks this was his you know first major win in four years what do you think it takes mentally to kind of set the pace out there and hold on as we've talked about.
5: Well, that's what Brooks Koepka has always been able to do until he hit this little career swoon due to injury over the last couple of years. The reason why Brooks was so good at winning majors is that he had this competitive drive. And he said that he was just more equipped than other guys to deal with sort of the pressure and the difficulty of the shots it takes to win on really, really hard major championship venues. And this is, He's a big-game hunter when it comes to these tournaments. I mean, when it's sort of regular tournaments, it's like, oh, okay, like, do I really want to put forth the effort that I need to do this? But he just knows the shots to hit. He can overpower golf courses. He can really will the ball into the hole more so than almost any of his peers. And the only thing that really had knocked him off of the pedestal of being the best major player of his generation was injuries. And a year ago at this time, he was sort of questioning whether or not he was ever going to be able to have the game to do it again I think the injuries have just sort of zapped him of this confidence. And it's a big reason why he jumped from the PGA tour and took the money to go play on the live golf tour, because he just didn't really know if he was going to have it. And then he's healthy again this year. And we've seen it in the two major championships that, you know, big game Brooks is back. And he talked about that. And I think we've seen his maturation so much in the last 12 months. And he was sort of open and spilling his soul in the Netflix documentary that a lot of people have watched. And we sort of saw what he was going through. And so it was, it was a much more endearing Brooks Kepka yesterday than the first four majors that he won when he was just kind of nonchalantly like, "Look, yeah, I'm, you know, golf's kind of not my thing, but I'm just better than these guys. And I'm just tougher, <laughs> and you know, I wish I was a baseball player, but I'm a golfer. I'm just going to show these guys how it it takes." And then this one was significantly more emotional. I think Brooks won a lot of people. A lot of people who weren't Brooks Koepka fans, I think he won over this week just because you could see how, what it meant for him to make that climb all the way back. Because A year ago at this time, he was like, I can't compete with the Scotty Schefflers and John Rahms of the world. And this week, you stared him down and beat him.
3: Will Haskett of the PGA Tour Radio Network taking some time with us here on The Fan. Will, James and I were discussing this before we went on the air, but is there at all a sense of, of, of awkwardness or, or uncomfortability at all about Brooks being a live golfer and winning this event?
5: I think only if you want to make that the narrative. Brooks did a really good job of distancing himself from that this week. He was, Brooks kept playing in a major championship. A lot of the other live guys that were there were dressed, some of them head to toe. In their team live gear with some of their, you know, the range goats or the high flyers or whatever their weird team names are <laughs> on live. And Brooks didn't have any of that. He didn't have any of the branding. I do not even, I can't even remember what team name he is, like Team Smash, maybe. Like there was no Smash gear on Brooks Kepka this week. It was, he made this a point even afterwards where people were like, well, what does this do for live? And he, you know, he said a couple of the little talking points just kind of out of one side of his mouth and then said, no, this is about me. This is about me coming and winning a major championship, which. Look, is it a huge deal for Liv that one of their guys won a major? Absolutely. And they're going to market the hell out of it sure. over the next couple of days, especially going into a tournament. Is, was there anybody on Liv that was least likely to then be like, yay, Ra Liv? It was Brooks. Like, I mean, if you believe a lot of the chatter and the behind-the-scenes stuff, I, don't, I think he would go back to the PGA Tour if he wasn't in a three-year contract. That's me speculating, but there's a lot of smoke around with what that rumor happens to be right now around him. It is what it is. We have two tours. These guys are only going to play together four times a year. Um, but, yeah, every every good piece of news that happens for Liv is great for the Liv golf tour right now. And him winning was a really big deal. But it's way different than if Patrick Reed had won or even if Bryson DeChambeau had won because I think you would have heard a, a press conference afterwards or a guy there that would have been championing how amazing Liv was. Instead, it was Brooks being like, no, this was I did this for me. Like, I beat all these people, and I'm the PGA champion again and celebrate my work, not where I come from.
1: You talked about Scotty Scheffler obviously finishing runner-up. Can you? It wasn't a win, but can you speak to the level he's been at, you know, for the last year or so and, and just what he's been doing to put pressure on the rest of the field?
5: Yeah, 13th straight top 12 finish for him. It's the longest streak anybody's had since Tiger did it, I want to say, like 15 years ago or so. And his he just does everything so well. He had a terrible round on Saturday in the rain. Just got off to a bad start and never really developed enough momentum to just at least save the round enough to then be a, a full threat down the stretch yesterday. But, I mean, he sure tried. I mean, he tied the low round of the tournament. He had a, a bogey-free round in round one. I mean, he did some spectacular things this week. He just happened to have the one bad day. And Brooks Kep got a terrible first round, too. And he only hit six of 18 greens, but managed to scramble to a 72. And a lot of times in these majors, it's not necessarily what you do really, really well. It's what how can you make your worst moment not as bad from a scoring standpoint? How can you squeeze out the best score possible when things don't go very well for a six-hole or nine-hole stretch? And that was what kind of got Scotty Sheffield this week. Uh, he He's one of those players where it's really hard to point to something that he does phenomenally well, doesn't make a lot of bogeys. He hits it a mile. He's the most anonymous and personable and approachable superstar number one golfer. Like he's just sort of a ho-hum guy. Um, And so I think a lot of that kind of just takes away from us putting him on a massive pedestal compared to other guys who either have sort of that aura to them or have a, a superstar trait or quality about their game. But, I mean, he just keeps racking up top five finishes, and I wouldn't be surprised if he wins one of the final two majors this season. It's not the best of fits, I think. I think the first two majors of the year were probably going to be the best fits for Scotty Sheffler, but if he keeps playing at this level, he's going to be a real threat in L.A. in a couple of weeks.
3: Well, last question for you. Obviously, there's plenty of events between now and then, but when you look at the performances that you saw at Oak Hill over the weekend and the lead-up and the build-up to the U.S. Open obviously taking place June 15th. So here in just about three or four weeks, what were the biggest things that you're monitoring and tracking between now and then uh, with the upcoming events on tour?
5: Yeah. I mean, we have so many good tournaments and it's in a short window of time. I mean, the live guys are right back at it this week, which I found kind of interesting. It'd be kind of curious to see what kind of energy there is in Washington, DC for that tournament. While at the same time, the PGA tours at colonial and, fort worth which is a legendary tournament and then next week i'll be in dublin um, in columbus for the memorial which is one of the best golf tournaments in the world each and every year so there's a lot of opportunities to kind of see you know who gains a little bit of momentum but then we get a a west coast major on you know father's day which is always so fun because we get get prime time sunday night golf and i think we're just kind of I think there's going to be maybe some cool things for golf fans to cheer about. But again, like I said, the sad thing is that we're not going to see Brooks Kepka and Scotty Sheffer and Bryson Gambo and Dustin Johnson and Vince all compete against each other in the same tournament until we get to L.A. And so I could sit here and talk for 10 minutes about how all the tournaments between now and then are awesome and they're on great venues and they have amazing charitable contributions and you're going to see some of these star players in them. The fact of the matter is we're, you know, LA country club is only a month away and we're going to see, I think a really, really cool us open on a kind of funky and tricky layout out there in LA. So there's some good stuff coming, but I think it's more just tracking who's playing well, you know, who rises to the top and wins some of these events, because, you know, there's a momentum coming off of this major. A lot of these guys are exhausted. It was a really long week on a really hard golf course. And we'll see how they kind of bounce back in these weeks and, Rest and prepare, and who wins? Just kind of build that next level of momentum. But right now, we've got a really good thing going, where you know there's a handful of top guys in the sport that all seem to be there when it's all said and done. Scheffler now, Kepka back again, John Rahm, Rory. It'd be be hard pressed for me to see somebody outside of you know the top ten players in the world add in Kepka to that finding a way to win again when the U.S. Open tees off in a month.
3: Will Haskett with us from the PGA Tour Radio Network. Always nice to get your insights, Will, and fear not. uh, When we see you here a little bit in studio later this week, I will have plenty of flags ready to go for you uh, for all of our banter in the lead-up to the greatest spectacle in racing.
5: Are you saving all the Washington Commanders tampering content until I come in on Wednesday? Or are we just gonna wait until then to talk this? I,
3: I was thinking that we could this? we could we could bookend that with your predictions win loss wise for the Colts schedule. I was thinking we could do that.
5: Oh yes, please yes. Let's do season <laughs> prediction. Absolutely, can't wait for that. All right, we'll see you guys on Wednesday.
3: Thanks, Will. It's Will Haskett here on the Fan Midday Show.
4: Whether it's audiobooks or all time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kiskali is right for you.
1: Back here in the drivehubler.com studio, I'm James Boyd with Jimmy Cooks, cooking it up with Eddie Garrison on the Fan Midday Show, 1075 935. Thank you all for tuning in. We now have. Kyle Irving, not Kyrie, (laughs) Kyle Irving, who covers the NBA for Sporting News, NBA Canada. So maybe we'll ask him about Jamal Murray and other things like that. But to start off, Kyle, not Kyrie, how you doing?
6: I'm doing well. I appreciate you clarifying that for all the listeners out there.
1: Oh, man, it happens every time. Um, Quick story, I reached out to Kyle last year when I was doing Pacers pre-draft stuff, and I was like, I want to talk to this guy just because I know he gets this joke over and over again about the Kyle Kyrie thing. But
3: our eyes went wide when you sent that, when you sent his contact card into the group chat last night. I was very confused. had a lot going on, Kyle. And I was like, what? James is just just on a first name basis with Kyrie. What's going on? And then he's like, no, no, it's Kyle. And he actually steers into the skin with the joke. You can follow him on Twitter at Kyle Irv underscore. So yeah, it it was very just what? And then, oh, okay, now I understand what's going on type of deal. I'm sure you get it all the time.
6: Yeah, I do. I mean, Kyrie <laughs> Irving coming on to talk about the Boston Celtics meltdown would definitely be something. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, you know, before we get into the current NBA playoffs and just the holes that, you know, two teams find themselves in, you know, you do a lot of things year-round to prepare for the draft. What do you think of the spot that the Pacers are in at number 7 and the potential of who could fit there for this team moving forward?
6: I actually do like where the Pacers are at at number 7 because you know, on my draft board right now, the only team that I see uh, drafting for a similar fit as they need at, at that power forward position, you know, a little bit of front court help is the Pistons. Um, you know, right now I have Jarrett Walker from Houston uh, mocked to the Pistons at number five. I've seen Cam Whitmore there. Um, those are two players that I really think would be a fantastic fit to the Indiana Pacers. I think there's three players total that I have on my eye for Indiana, and that's Cam Whitmore, Jarris Walker, and also Taylor Hendricks out of UCF. I mean, starting with Cam Whitmore from Villanova, he's extremely explosive. He's an incredible athlete. He kind of got off to a slow start at the beginning of the year because he had some surgery in the preseason, but he's the type of player he almost reminds me of like an Aaron Gordon. Uh, you know, really solid defender. He's still a little bit raw as an offensive player as a scorer, but I think a playmaker like Ty- Tyree Taliburton would really get the most out of him. Um, I also think that you know, Jarvis Walker, he's someone who is one of the best defenders, all around defenders in this draft class, in my opinion. He's someone that I think could also be there at number seven if the Pacers, I mean, uh, if the Pistons don't scoop him up. He's so physical. Uh, you know, he's an inside out presence. He Displayed a little bit of an ability to shoot the three ball. He's a little bit more raw offensively than say you know Cam Whitmore is, but you know the defense is absolutely there inside and out. He's someone that could anchor the paint and play the five if he needed to as a small ball center. Um, he can defend on the perimeter because he has a lateral quickness. So those are two players that I really like for Indiana, and I'd be surprised if they don't end up with one of those players on their draft board when they go to pick at number seven.
1: Gotcha. And so one of the guys you touched on him a little bit there, Taylor Hendricks. I feel like he's. I don't want to say unknown, but sort of a dark horse, potential top five type of pick. And so what are some things about his game that are, it seems like, becoming more enticing to, in- not NFL, I'm sorry, <laughs> I've been in NFL too long, I'm sorry, NBA <laughs> GMs and, you know, decision makers?
6: Yeah, he's someone that I don't really think was even on mock draft boards going into the season. I mean, he's a freshman, he's a little bit more unheralded, uh, you know, going to UCF, not some sort of high major powerhouse uh, school, but I think what makes him so special and what's you know why he's skyrocketing up mock draft boards is because he really is the exact prototype of what you're looking for in a forward in today's NBA. You know, he's a stretch four, He's six foot nine. He's 210 pounds. His wingspan's over seven feet. He shot almost 40% from three point range this year at UCF. Um, you know, he can defend inside and out. Again, versatile defender. Uh, I think when you combine his blocks and steals, he averaged uh, 2.6 uh, stocks, as we call it. Uh, per game. So he's someone that, you know, even though he wasn't this, you know, high major five-star superstar recruit going into college, he proved that he can do all the things that NBA scouts and GMs and coaches are looking for at the NBA level. And I really do think that, you know, just because even though he wasn't, you know, the the big time college player, I do think that he's someone that uh, teams will start looking at in the top 10, just because of how well his game fits at the NBA level.
3: Kyle Irving with us here on the fan midday show produces content and covers the draft for sporting news as well as for NBA Canada with us here on the fan midday show. It feels like for the last I don't know, six months, maybe more, Kyle, that Scoot Henderson went from maybe being in a conversation, as I I won't say just as talented as Wembenyama, because that story's been here for the last year, year and a half, but it felt like just as valuable, depending on where you are as a franchise, trying to build a mold or or set yourself up for success in the future. When you look at Wembenyama having fully dwarfed everybody in terms of coverage, in terms of just hype, everything else, and and he's backed it up on the court as well. Where does it leave guys like Scoot Henderson and Brandon Miller in this draft cycle when they probably internally feel like they can be high-level impact franchise guys for whatever team takes them?
6: Yeah, I mean, when Scoot Henderson and Victor Weminyama had that showcase at the beginning of the year, um, I was lucky enough to be on hand for that. And it really did kind of feel like, you know, even though Weminiar was always going to be the number one pick, that was never a doubt. Uh, there was, you know, a pretty, it felt pretty sure that Scoot Henderson was going to be the number two guy. And as the season went on, obviously Brandon Miller emerged. Again, I think that's another player who he just fits the way that the game is played at the NBA level so well. as uh, a three level score, he's, you know, big, a big forward. He is an absolute sniper from three point range, uh, knocking down almost 40% of his threes as well. He can get it done in a variety of ways. And when you look at the Hornets who are picking at number two, they really need more of a wing scorer uh, than they do a lead guard like Scoot Henderson because obviously LaMelo Ball is the future of the franchise there. But, you know, to me, the Hornets are not good enough to really be drafting to fit a need. And I'm still so high on Scoot Henderson as the clear number two prospect in this draft class. He's just so physically mature. He's, you know, he's got broad shoulders. He's absolutely jacked. Uh, you know, he's extremely explosive. He has a turbo button when he's getting downhill to the rim. And, you know, he's a sniper from the mid range. Uh, his, his inconsistency from three point range is something that a lot of people are concerned about how that's going to translate at the next level. But he is kind of a combo guard. I think he could play off LaMelo Ball. The Hornets could find a way to make it work. And more so than anything else, Scoot Henderson is going to work until he is one of the best guards in the NBA. He's a workhorse. He 's someone that the only things that matter to him are his family and basketball he's a He has a relentless work ethic, and everybody around him speaks so highly of you know his intelligence and just hunger to get better and you know it's those types of things that makes me feel just a little bit more certain about how he's going to pan out at the nBA level so you know Brandon Miller. He's an incredible player. He's a really, really strong shooter. He's a versatile defender. If the Hornets do go with him at number two overall to fit a need, I would understand it. I'm just saying that if I'm the if I'm the decision maker uh, in that situation, I'm going Scoot Henderson at number two all day. Kyle,
1: we've seen you know some recent lottery picks in the NBA take jumps. Most notably, I think SGA, who has just been <laughs> phenomenal, be first team All NBA. I thought he was incredible. I also thought that Tyrese Halliburton, the jump that he made, was pretty incredible. And maybe he could have even contended for an All-NBA spot had the team record been better and had he stayed healthier. But what did you think of the way he maybe asserted himself more offensively while still being able to distribute and um, you know average over 10 assists a game?
6: Yeah, Tyree Talberton, he's someone who, you know, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I haven't had draft misses. I have certainly had draft misses. But I actually have an article out there uh, from Tyrese Talberton's draft class uh, on how he is the most underrated player in his draft class. He was someone who coming out, I was just so impressed with his playmaking. It just seemed like the game came so easy to him. Um, you know, he's got that quirky jump shot, but he's found a way to make it work. And we're seeing all that stuff translate to the NBA level. Um, he really is. Just one of the most special playmakers in the NBA today. I do think that you know you compared him to SGA in, in that type of beat that he had, and I do agree with you that he could have received All NBA consideration had he been healthy and had the Pacers, you know, kind of maintained the energy that they had at the beginning of the season. But you know, Tyrese Halliburton, is someone who I would be very confident uh, as a franchise cornerstone. He's someone who, no matter who's around him, he's going to make the players around him better because he's just that special of a playmaker. Uh, you know, he's a, a true 2010 threat as a point guard, which is incredible. Um, you know, he's someone that is easy to build around when you're talking, you know, I'm looking at, okay, who's going to fit well in Indiana when I'm looking at this year's draft class. And I think about how well he could make, uh, you know, how much easier you make life, for someone like Cam Whitmore, who needs to uh, get better at creating for himself, Uh, how much easier he can make life for someone like Jairus Walker, who's a little bit more raw uh, raw offensively, but has all the physical tools and athleticism to be a threat around the rim. So, you know, I think when you have a player like Hal Burton as your franchise cornerstone, it just makes building a team so much easier because you can be confident in his abilities to uplift everyone around him.
3: We'd be remiss not to give a little bit of love to our our local prospects that could potentially be at the next level when the draft rolls around in June. Obviously, it's unknown if Zach Eadie is going to take his name out of the draft or not. That's still a conversation if he's going to return to Purdue. But on the other side of the state with Indiana, Jalen hood Shafino, Trace Jackson-Davis, where do you see them mocking out or the type of benefits they could have as you kind of progress out their careers, assuming they get the right fit from the team that takes them?
6: Yeah, I mean, right away, Jalen Huchofino, he's someone who I feel like I'm personally higher on the most. Um, I know the highs were high this year and the lows were low this year. But just, you know, having that experience running a pick-and-roll offense at Indiana with Trace Jackson Davis the way that he did this season, uh, I was really impressed with him in the games that he played well, obviously the games that he didn't. You know, you kind of wonder how this guy is ending up in the lottery on some mock drafts. But I have him mocked for the Raptors at number 13 right now. Um, The Raptors are a team that Fred VanVleet, they're not sure if he's going to pick up his player option this offseason. Gary Trent Jr., it's looking like he's heading out the door. So they really need a lead guard. And the Raptors have such a history of developing talent that I feel like Jalen Huchofino would be a great fit there. And I do see him as a lottery-caliber talent. Um, You know, I have him graded in my on my big board as a lottery-caliber talent at number 13. Uh, Trace Jackson Davis is another player who, you know, to me, he feels like a first-rounder because he just – does everything so well. Like he plays the game at such a high level and he was such a productive player in college that even though he's a little bit undersized and he can't shoot from the perimeter, um, you know, which are things that would kind of deter you from taking a small ball, you know, power forward or center uh, at the NBA level, he just does so many other things, whether it's, you know, setting something as simple as setting screens, boxing out, grabbing rebounds, making the hustle plays, being in the right spot at the right time. He's going to be able to rotate on defense and switch onto the perimeter. And those are the types of intangibles that, you know, you see. From teams in the playoffs right now, I mean, a lot of teams are playing a lot smaller. Uh, I see Trace Jackson Davis as the type of player who can fit in a playoff rotation and kind of like step out onto the floor and be able to guard multiple positions and do different things. So, you know, for those two, I'm really high on both of them. I have them both graded as first-round talents. Zach obviously a little bit more difficult of a situation just because, you know, again, using the playoffs right now as an example, it's very tough to find a spot on the floor for someone that big who can get targeted in pick and roll situations and everything like that. Obviously, if he declares, I do think a team, uh, whether it's somewhere in the second round, will give him a shot. Uh, just because obviously he was so good this year and he's so big. And you know, there there are situations in the regular season to use a guy like that. It's just going to be tough to keep him on the floor in the playoffs, which is why you know he's not projected as a first round talent, even though he's one of the best players in college basketball.
1: So, Kyle, we saw this morning Carmelo Anthony announced his retirement from the game. One of my favorite players to watch as a kid, because I just thought in his prime he would just bully people and then have that feathery jump shot that I feel like I airballed a lot trying on my driveway because he shot it so (laughs) high. But for you, what will stand out to you the most about Carmelo's career?
6: Man, I love Carmelo Anthony, too. Stay mellow forever. He is uh, you know, he. I feel like he's just a, he's a fan favorite across the board, even though people, you know, want to talk about, you know, lack of a championship and, you know, how he didn't win and things like that. I'm always going to remember him as just one of the most lethal scorers that I have ever seen. You get him in that high post, that mid-range level, and it just felt like it was going down every single time. Uh, and, you know, even if it's just something as simple as the three balls of the head celebration, that's something that, you know, I'll probably be playing pickup and still try and break that <laughs> out if I get a little bit of a hot streak. So for real, stay mellow forever.
3: Kyle Irving with us of the sporting news, looking at the ongoing conference finals. I want to first start out East. There were jokes amongst some of the Miami media and some Miami fans before the playoffs started that they really wanted to match up with Boston. So obviously a lot of bad blood between those two franchises and it didn't happen, right? They had to go against the bucks, but Miami, it doesn't matter. They're able to take advantage of every opportunity that they've had and to this point, are on the doorstep of really, in some regards, an improbable run to the NBA Finals. What? Where's the biggest switch that's flipped outside of playoff, Jimmy? I mean, obviously that that matters the most. But you had mentioned on Twitter during the proceedings there, Kyle, that it felt like Miami or Boston rather treated this as a game four in game three, and honestly looked like they had their bags packed, ready to walk away and head to Cancun.
6: Yeah, I mean, that was just an extremely, extremely disappointing level of effort shown by the Celtics. Um, I actually thought they came out with a little bit of fire yesterday, and Jalen and Jason played well in the first quarter. But then when the heat punched back, the Celtics kind of just rolled over and we were like, yeah, well, you know what, you guys can have this one too. Um, to me, I think the biggest difference, obviously, is the contributors from you know guys that aren't Jimmy Butler. I mean, you look at Gabe Vincent, who outscored Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum combined <laughs> yesterday, and obviously they didn't play in the fourth quarter, so that – Jade the numbers a little bit, but, you know, Gabe Vincent outscoring uh, Boston's dynamic duo. You have guys like Max Struce, Caleb Martin, who are shooting the lights out. Duncan Robinson was getting it done on the floor yesterday, and the Celtics weren't attacking him to the point where, you know, Spo had to pull him off the floor. I mean, the Heat are shooting the lights out from three point range. Gabe Vincent is shooting 38% in these playoffs. Max Struce, 37%. Caleb Martin is shooting 42% from three. Duncan Robinson, almost 45%. You know, it, it, it makes life a lot easier for guys like Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler when the other players around them are knocking down shots to the point that you really need to stay out on the perimeter and you can't really double down on Bam. You can't really throw two bodies at Jimmy because other guys are beating you. But, you know, for the Celtics it's kind of the same story as last year that almost got them bounced by the Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals. They can't beat that zone. They're not moving the ball. They're I mean, they're, the ball is sticking. They're forcing up bad shots. Uh, Jalen and, and Jason are just kind of driving into multiple bodies, turning the ball over. It's the same issues that we saw last year, and they were able to get out by the skin of their teeth last season, but this year, the defense is not at the same level as it was last year, and that's the biggest difference for this Celtics team. They're not coming up with stops. The offense has gotten stagnant, and to me, honestly, I think they're getting up out of here in four games tomorrow.
1: Yeah, I was very shocked to see them just fall apart yesterday. The Lakers could get swept tonight quite honestly what do you think they have to do to stay alive if they can stay alive and not to take anything away from the Nuggets because they've been fantastic and I personally think that's going to end tonight but you know I guess as Jokic said you're always a little worried because LeBron James on the other side do they have enough to get a game tonight at home and I guess force their season to at least go back to Denver
6: I think they actually have a better chance of winning tonight than the Celtics do tomorrow, just by body language and you know how hard the Lakers played in that game the other night. I think that was an instance where you know Jamal Murray catches fire in the first half, scores thirty, and the Celt- i mean, I'm sorry, excuse me—the Lakers really just had no answer. So you know Nikola Jokic, he kind of had a quiet game all the way until he put him away in the fourth quarter with 15 points. Uh, so to me, it really is just kind of making sure that Jamal Murray does not get out, out to a scorching hot start the way he did the other night because that allows Jokic to kind of you know ease his way into the game and create for others and do the things that he does best when he's not scoring for himself. And then by the time that the fourth quarter rolled around, he had all the energy in the world to you know kind of uh, put his foot on the gap a little bit and then and defeat the Lakers to get out to a 3-0 start. So to me, really, it, it starts with making sure Jamal Murray does not – you know, scorch earth the way that he did the other night. If they can kind of contain him in the first quarter and, and, you know, maybe make life a little bit more difficult for him, then I think the Lakers have an opportunity to kind of extend this series and get it done on the home floor on their home floor. But I really would give them a better chance of closing or I'd give them a better chance of winning tonight than I'd I would give the Celtics tomorrow night.
1: In fear of having Michael Malone yell at me for not giving the Nuggets enough love. <laughs> <laughs> What did you think of, not only, I mean, we know Jokic is Jokic. He's, in my opinion, arguably the best player in the world. You look at what Jamal Murray is doing, and when he's on, he is one of the best players on the floor, one of the best players in the world. But that supporting cast around him, around them, rather, is what stands out to me the most. So what do you think of the way that Michael Porter Jr., Bruce Brown, KCP, these guys have stepped up and sort of seized the moment alongside their two leaders?
6: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, part of what makes the Nuggets so dangerous is they really don't care how they beat you. You know, Jokic doesn't mind if he has 15 points, uh, if he's going to dish out 15 assists, and KCP is going to be shooting the lights out, and so is MPJ. And I think it just goes to show, you know, how much of a team they truly are and why they've been the best team the entire postseason so far, because you have guys like. Bruce Brown, who are stepping up and having you know a monster game in Game Two, you have guys like Aaron Gordon who have really kind of put his pride aside as a scorer and is just going out there and doing his best to lock up whoever the other team's best player is. So you know, these championship teams, it's a sum of all parts. It's never really going to just be one or two guys, and I think that's exactly what you're seeing from the Nuggets. It is. You know, the it's it's kind of like a banner for just team basketball and next man up and whoever has the hot hand we're gonna ride that. And I think the Nuggets have a couple guys on the perimeter and you know guys that are willing to grind it out that they trust. uh, Whether that's KCP, whether it's MPJ, uh, Aaron Gordon, Bruce Brown, those types of guys are ready to step up whenever their number is called. But at the same time, like you said, you have the two-time MVP Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray, who is right now one of the most dangerous players in the playoffs when he gets going. So you know it could be any guy on any given night.
3: Kyle Irving of the Sporting News with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Kyle, the Heat are up 3-0. The Nuggets are up 3-0. When you look at the Lakers and the Celtics, I think we're all in agreement that all these series are pretty much dead to rights and it's a foregone conclusion. But if you had to attach your wagon to one to so become the first team to climb out of a 3-0 hole, which would it be and Why?
6: It's funny to say because I just said the Lakers have a better chance of winning tonight than the Celtics do tomorrow. <laughs> but if I, if I could pick one team to climb out of the 3-0 hole, I think it would be the Celtics just because uh, I don't know how many people wouldn't agree that they are still the more talented team. They just haven't wanted it as much as the Heat have in this series. But you know, I think tomorrow we're going to see plenty of, uh, you know, Kevin, Kevin Millar clips on Twitter of, Don't let us win tonight. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You're going to see a lot of that tomorrow. And I don't know if the Celtics even have enough heart to kind of, you know, have that don't let us win tonight mentality, but you know, if they were to pull it off tomorrow night, then you're going back to Boston uh, for game five you win that you're going to Miami where they've honestly played better on the road and yesterday didn't really show that but they played better on the road in this postseason so and then it would be back to home in Boston for a game seven so I would probably give the Celtics a better chance to climb out of a 3-0 hole even though I just said they're dead in the water tomorrow
1: well, Kyle, I really appreciate your time, man. I do want to say, since we had you on the show here in Indy, I expect your next mock draft to feature victim woman Yombe at number seven to the Pacers <laughs> because we all know that's going to happen. <laughs> but um, take care, buddy. Thank you so much for your time, and we'll make sure to check in with you throughout you know, the, the, the draft process and things like that because I'm sure you're going to cook up a lot of good things.
6: Of course. Anytime, guys. Thank you so much for having me.
1: That is Kyle, not Kyrie, Kyle Irving of the Sporting News, NBA Canada. Nice enough to join us here on the Midday Show. The fan.